an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Uh, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, uh, let him have your... Wait a minute, this is the wrong outline. <clears throat> you need to uh, change this. This is last week's outline. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that was a great sermon. We liked it so much, we were going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I will read it uh, uh, at Matthew 5 tell me when you're ready okay <clears throat> Sound po- po- uh, tech, Diane but I'm going to read it so we can keep going because uh, uh, we have more stuff to do after the sermon Matthew 5 43 through 48 says you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you... Are we there? Great. What reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. I wonder what tax collectors feel when they read this. I don't know a tax collector. I'll have to meet one. Therefore, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this is the final comparison. If remember, we've been going through a whole list of uh, behavior comparisons between um, Jesus was comparing kingdom righteousness with uh, pharisaical legalistic righteousness, but He was also comparing it to uh, worldly uh, uh, lifestyle that lacked righteousness whatsoever, defined righteousness uh, based on you know whatever they wanted to do. So this is the final comparison. It goes all the way back to verse 20 of chapter 5 when Jesus said, "...unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." And so from starting from there, He went through and gave us a bunch of examples, this being the last one, because it's comparing, you have heard it uh, said, and I say to you. That's how we know it was a series. So we're going to kind of go through this and, and uh, unpack it, as they say. Uh, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Well, the first part of that, in, 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 the, in this translation that I was using, all caps in the New Testament refer to a, a quotation from the Old Testament. Different Bibles, depending on the printer, decide how to indicate uh, Old Testament quotations. But in this one, if it's all caps in the New Testament, that means it's an actual Bible verse in the Old Testament, and you can find it. And so if you're doing a Bible study, it's good to find it. <clears throat> and so the uh, reference that this is, Jesus is referring to is Leviticus 19, part of the law, where it says, you shall, take, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudges against the children of your people. Well, that's pretty clear. Don't take... Uh, uh, vengeance or bear grudges against anybody of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So very uh, 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 well-known verse and, and it's part of the great commandment. Uh, love God with your whole heart and your neighbor as yourself. The neighbor as yourself part is right here in Leviticus. The, the words hate your enemy, you notice they're not in all caps. You know why? 
Because that's not a quote from the Old Testament. That's nowhere in the law. But people were saying it, and Jesus is, is confronting that teaching uh, and, and is going to bring truth. He says, this is what people have been saying, but I'm going to tell you something that's, that, that's actually true. He's, he's confronting a, a misapplication of an Old Testament idea. So, hating your enemy is not in the Old Testament, but it is an inference which can be easily drawn from old, uh, a clear Old Testament distinction between the required attitude toward fellow Israelites and toward foreigners. In other words, if you read through the Old Testament, man, there's always these battles going on and how um, you were to treat another uh, Israelite was significantly different uh, than going in and, and, and especially when they were at war. And so there is a very clear, because the Old Testament had to do with the nation state of Israel preserving the lineage of Jesus Christ. And, and, and so there were wars involved because it was a protection of both the lineage, that was a primary reason, and the territory that God had promised Abraham. Nevertheless, uh, uh, hating of, the en- of enemies was not something that God commanded. But hating of enemies was a really popular uh, idea and attitude among the Pharisees and a lot of others in Jesus' day. So he was, again, striking a chord that was a cultural a hot button. <clears throat> All right. Now, one of the verses that uh, you could look to and say, well, it says hating enemies. Uh, what about this here, Cameron? So we're going to look at Psalm 139 because this is probably one of the verses that the Pharisees were misinterpreting or misapplying. And it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For you speak, uh, for they speak against you wickedly. Now notice this is a prayer to God. David is praying. For they, bloodthirsty men, speak against you, God, wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So you go, well, wow, David's hating God's enemies. It sounds like it's a good thing. Well, let's just kind of understand this verse and, and what it really means. This is speaking of God's enemies, not personal ones. All right? It was talking about those who hate God, uh, not those who had a personal problem or a, a, a interpersonal conflict with David as, a, as an individual. And it says, I count them my enemies. So this is a confession that David made. David's confession that he will not side with those who oppose God. So he's saying there's a, there's a group of people that are antagonistic against the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. They oppose the things of God. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to count those people my enemies. I'm siding with God. Right? He was gonna, he was a, it was a confession uh, in prayer that he was going to remain faithful to God. And he was actually interceding for deliverance from bloodthirsty men. Right? This is not about <clears throat> David's heart attitude toward those 
uh, people as individuals, but it was David's confession of faithfulness towards God. <clears throat> and then, the end of it is actually a plea in his prayer to be cleansed of any personal wickedness. So, this is not a holier-than-thou uh, prayer, but rather a really humble admission and, 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 and prayer to say, Lord, and if there's anything in me that is in opposition to You, cleanse me and change me. <clears throat> so Jesus is not annulling uh, David's righteous prayer in any way, but He is exposing the use of this passage to justify personal hatred and the mistreatment of others. All right? So, so a, a Pharisaical uh, misunderstanding of this, a wrong interpretation of this, would uh, use this as a proof text or as a verse to say, see, we can hate, hate our enemies and act hateful uh, toward others based on this. But that's not at all what, what David's intention was in this prayer. It was actually a, a prayer of confession that he's going to be faithful to God and a prayer for deliverance. Does that make sense? Alright? And so Jesus is confronting the uh, misapplication of that scripture and telling us the really what, what, what that verse and what God's intention was all along. So he continues in verse 44. It says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Again, he's redefining who neighbor applies to. The word neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, and all the way through Jesus' ministry, he, he tackles this idea many times. Um, Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. He's establishing, he's, he's describing, he's teaching us what kingdom righteousness looks like. And this is a, is a very popular verse, very famous verse, but it's a, uh, France, one of the, the commentaries I'm looking to through this study, says that this, concerning this verse says this, that there is a sweeping universality in the love Jesus demands which has no parallel in Jewish literature. In other words, up to this time, this idea of just loving everyone equally had not really been discussed. And this, this was a challenge for Jesus' listeners because uh, they had lived in a system and because they had fought for their existence, they had kind of been brought up in a culture where they hated uh, uh, their enemies and, and religious leaders kind of justified that as righteous behavior. And now Jesus is saying, no, we have to actually love them. And so it's, it's kind of jarring. Uh, um, <clears throat> the previous verses commanded earlier in, in the Sermon on the Mount, there was commands that we turn our other cheek, that we give away our coat, that we go an extra mile. So those are all actions. But now Jesus are, is telling us that our attitudes must be loving as well. Our attitudes, our inner heart motivation must be in line. And that, that's kind of harder, isn't it? You know, to actively love someone who's, who's taking advantage of you. It's a higher level of righteousness. In fact, this verse is one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. Active love toward those who curse, hate, spitefully use, and persecute uh, Christians has been the basis of countless testimonies of Christians overcoming tyranny. And you can read so much, even right now in our day, in places like Indonesia and China and North Korea, um, uh, through, through the Sagers, uh, we met uh, one of the mission leaders that actually travels into North Korea, which is one of the most oppressed nations on, on the planet. And there are Christians 
confessing their faith and literally dying as a result of it and into Muslim nations. Uh, But it's this act of loving, of loving those who are actually persecuting Christians that has led the transformation in countless uh, societies. Much of what happened in the Soviet Union falling, you'll never read this in the, in the, in the news reports, but if you, if you talk to the people that live there, you'll see that the church had a huge part to play in the unraveling of that uh, um, atheistic system. Uh, it just didn't work because people would not give up their faith and the faith over overcame all those obstacles and it and it didn't through uh protest but through love you know sometimes there's a place for protest but jesus is saying the most powerful uh thing that you can do is love so that's great when we're talking about uh government tyranny but we must apply this in our personal lives okay so let's bring this down because if we can't apply it in our lives how would we ever be able to apply this if we're called on to live in a place where you really could be arrested or persecuted. Okay, um, and, and, and Really, we need to ask ourselves, how do we treat those that you perceive as your enemy in your daily life? You know, well, I don't have any enemies. Well, how do you respond when someone says something negative about you? When you hear that some co-worker or a neighbor or someone at church, I know it never happened at this church, <clears throat> said something about you that you feel like it was an insult. Because that, that's a curse. That's them cursing you. How do you respond when someone says something negative to you? Do you get enraged? Do you kind of defend yourself? Do you go into self-defense mode? Do you go into, well, what about them? And point out there... Jesus is tackling that very, very relevant issue. How do we feel toward those you perceive as using you, persecuting or picking on you? What's your heart response when people take advantage of you? Or pick on you? Or every time I'm around them, they do or say something that makes me feel like they think they're better than me. And these are dynamics that I know happen in in all of our lives. Because some of you come and talk to me about it. (laughs) And others of you don't come and talk to me about it. But I know it happens. It happens in my life. Competition. You know? So this idea of, well, how do you respond? Do you you respond defensively or do you respond in love? And Jesus is saying our heart response must be love and our actions should demonstrate that. And listen, we need to learn to apply that now when it's just a a, a verbal slight or emotional thing. Or maybe they even intentionally said something that was really rude. Right to your face. How do you respond? Jesus is saying you should love on them. Wow. All right. It says, that you may, Jesus goes on, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. 
So the, uh, a big part of this is that you, we, we behave this way, or kingdom righteousness calls, to this, calls us to live this way for a reason, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus has, has a, a destination that He's working toward, and that is that we would be, that we would live as sons and daughters in, in relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that's really a central point of uh, the Gospel and all of uh, Jesus' teaching is, is the idea of sonship. Whether you're a male or female, it's gender neutral. But it's, it's the idea of being a son of God the Father. Living in relationship as God your Father. A son or daughter. Jesus actually says, in a very familiar verse in John 14, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? We all know this. Jesus is Lord. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But the way is, is kind of interesting. The way where? Just to heaven? Just to eternal life? No, the actual destination is no one comes to the Father except through Me. So Jesus came as the way, and the way is not just salvation, but the way is to the Father. Uh, it's very, very important that we understand this. It changes our whole uh, um, understanding of what kingdom. Remember, He's talking about the kingdom and what it means to live as a disciple and, and the goal of living as a disciple is to be in right relationship with the Father. Following Jesus not only makes us Christ-like, but it brings us to our destination, the Father. From this identity as sons and daughters, so it's an issue of your identity, who you see yourself to be. Alright? Uh, uh, Peter, in Second Peter 1.4, says that we are partakers of the divine nature. His nature is deposited into us. That's sonship, okay? I have characteristics. When I look at a picture of my dad and my mom, you know, I look like them. I act like my dad sometimes. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I'm they're like, geez, dad, how'd you get in there? You know, especially as I get older. <laughs> right? I inherited his attributes. Physical attributes and some emotional and other characteristics. Well, in the same way, in a spiritual sense, we need to be inherit, we need to inherit, uh, our Father's attributes. And it takes supernatural love to, to love those who hate us. It really does. You can't do that just on a human level. Jesus then points out that loving those, <clears throat> only loving those who love us is no different than the very people the Pharisees were claiming to be superior to. And he references tax collectors and Gentiles. So that's, that's a direct kind of um, reference to some of his listeners or just to the crowd. They all knew the Pharisees treated tax collectors and, and Gentiles uh, as second class. And he's, he's saying that's not the culture of the kingdom. We love everyone equally. <clears throat> and so I have to ask you, do you see yourself... Is that how you identify yourself? Is that your identity? And do, does your actions and attitudes uh, display the character of Christ? This is really the verse I wanted to get to because I think this is, this is the, the main verse of this portion of, of the, and actually the whole part of the, the whole beginning of the Sermon on the Mount leads up to this. And this is actually a major theme in, in Christ's teaching throughout His whole ministry and the whole purpose of Scripture. <laughs> this is it. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Talk about setting the bar high. <clears throat> Alright? <laughs> Jesus wasn't afraid. This is really a grand summary 
of Jesus' teaching on kingdom righteousness. Alright? So, now I'm going to go through the Life Application Bible's little writing about how to be perfect. Because there's some good stuff in it, but then I'm going to contradict it. And, and this is an example. One, I, I want to show you that. You just got to, you got to, you got to realize uh, Bible study resources are just written by men. And, and they, they have truth in them, but, you know, maybe not the whole truth. And there's room to disagree on some of these things. So, from the Live Application Bible, how can you be perfect? Well, in character. I, I like some of this. Uh, I like it all, but I'm just, I just think it's only in part. It says, in this life, we cannot be flawless. Well, let's just asterisk that. I'm going to talk a little bit about it more later, but I disagree with that. All right? In one sense, it's true in that because I have sinned in my past, I will not be perfect because past sins have already corrupted me. But the idea of living flawless, um, that's an assumption, and we'll deal with that in a second. Actually, in a couple of minutes. But, we, but in general, it's saying, but we can aspire to be as much as like Christ as possible. Well, that's good. Yeah, we want to aspire to kingdom righteousness in our character. <clears throat> Secondly, it goes on and says, in holiness. So this is another, another category where we can live perfect as our Father. Like the Pharisees, we are to separate ourselves from the world's sinful values. Amen. We're to separate. Holiness means to be set apart, sanctified, different from the world. And so, like the Pharisees, yeah, we need to behave differently. Uh, but unlike the Pharisees, we are to be devoted to God's desires uh, and, rather than our own and carry His love and mercy out into the world. So the Pharisees kind of lacked and that they, they, they weren't really reaching out in love to sinners. They were just kind of protecting their own holiness. So, you know, this is good that we are to be like God in holiness. Perfect. <clears throat> and then in maturity, in the Life Application Bible says, we can't achieve Christ-like character and holy living all at once. Well, we'll look at that a little deeper in a minute. But we must grow toward maturity and wholeness. Yep, we need to grow. I can agree with that part. Uh, just as we expect different behavior from a baby, a child, a teenager, an adult, so God expects different behavior from us depending on our stage of spiritual development. You know what? And there is a measure of truth to that. Uh, so there's different, like if you're br brand new salvation or if you're a young person just kind of growing in your maturity in Christ, you're going to make mistakes that someone that's seasoned in God uh, may not. <clears throat> but on the other hand, someone who gets radically saved, even though they have no history in Christianity, can jump way ahead simply as a response of faith and allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to transform their life. And some people can take their whole life to make the slightest change. And it's not because there's a lacking of power on God's part. Okay? Fourth way is, is in love. We can seek to love others as completely as God loves us. Oh, that's great. So again, these are all like, they, they interpret it as like aspirational values. Values you aspire to, but you really can't achieve that. We all know we're not perfect. So we'll just, you know, let's just kind of strive toward that. <clears throat> um, and it goes on and says, we can be perfect if our behavior is appropriate to our maturity level. And this is one way to understand it. It's not, I'm not saying they're, they're wrong. I just don't think it's the whole story. So we can be perfect or complete if our behavior is appropriate to our maturity level, uh, yet perfect yet with much room to grow. Our tendency to sin must never deter us from striving to be more like Christ. And I agree with that completely. If you sin, that doesn't mean you stop striving to be like Christ. You ask forgiveness, you repent of it, and you, and you press on. 
Christ calls all his disciples to excel, to rise above mediocrity, and to mature in every area. Amen. Becoming like him. Amen. Those who strive to become perfect will one day be perfect, even as Christ is perfect. So they kind of end it with a, you know, strive toward it, and one day, of course, they're implying, and I think they're implying the resurrection, uh, you'll be perfect. The only thing I have with that is that Jesus said, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So Jesus is setting the standard for kingdom righteousness is His Father. Alright? And it's from the relationship with the Father through Christ that we can live perfect. Alright? Perfect does mean it means complete. It means mature. But that doesn't lessen the point. Okay? In other words, it doesn't mean perfection in some scientific way that every detail of your life has to be perfectly in order. But it means it's the idea of being complete, being mature. But that's not the lesson, the impact of Jesus' demand or command for us. Our level of completion, our level of com- uh, perfection and maturity must be as our Father in Heaven. You see, the, the, the words <clears throat> of Scripture are not meant to make you feel bad or just reveal where your, your, your shortcomings are. They are the power of God to, call, to enable you, to empower you, to actually live those words. Do you know that? Okay? When you believe what God says in His Word, that empowers you to actually behave that way. And so if there's a shortfall between your behavior and what God's Word calls for, you need to read that Word, you need to confess that Word, you need to believe that Word, and pretty soon you'll be behaving that Word. Alright? Because it empowers. Jesus is saying, I believe, that we are to live uh, as though we are in heaven with our Father right now. Because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are, are synonyms throughout Scripture referring to similar or the same thing. <clears throat> and so I'm disagreeing a little bit with the Life Application Bible and a lot of Christian teaching in that perfection or living free from sin is something we aspire to but never attain. I, I think that's a little wrong. i, I got to ask myself, is that what Jesus is saying? Actually, I just believe what Jesus said there. I'm more fundamental than the fundamentalist. Alright? I take this literally. I love it when I find a fundamentalist. I'm more fundamental than I'm fundamentalist. Because I actually believe the Bible leans what it says. The, way, the word shall is not in the Greek. Because when we read shall, it sounds like some future tense. Okay? And it helps the sentence flow, but it's more of a command. It's an imperative. Uh, it's not a future tense, someday off a pie in the sky kind of thing. Uh, it's, uh, and to presume that this can only be fulfilled in heaven is a significant stretch, and frankly, it does not fit with the context of the Sermon on the Mount. To say that this only applies in heaven doesn't fit with the context. Jesus is not talking about what is going to be in the resurrection. He's talking about how you live righteousness now. Alright? So, okay. <laughs> to not take this literally, I believe, is missing the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? I know. Some people are going to be upset about this, maybe. Why would Jesus give us this long description of kingdom righteousness, basing it all upon reflecting the nature of the Father, if He did not intend us to actually live it? Wouldn't that be the very thing Jesus had just accused the Pharisees? And all through this, 
uh, saying this is what the Pharisees are doing with the law, finding loopholes that exempt them from actually living the true meaning. Well, I can't live perfect. That can't be what Jesus means. Nobody can live perfect. So, <clears throat> I mean, that's, Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus is saying the Pharisees were doing. Right, Jesus doesn't require perfection. Listen, it's very clear. Uh, it doesn't re- God doesn't require perfection to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're saved by grace. It's a gift. You can't earn it. Alright? But it's that grace that empowers us to live righteous. He teaches that following Him and coming into relationship with the Father as sons and daughters means that we can. This is the message of the Gospel. That you can live free from sin. That what was not able to be attained under the law is able to be attained in the Gospel. Alright, because of what Jesus came to do, because of what Jesus died on the cross and outpouring the Holy Spirit actually enables us to attain righteousness that was always desired for. Alright? It's an empowering. <clears throat> so we, we can and should live the nature and the character of our Father. That's what it means by being born again. We have a new uh, a spiritual DNA. So how do you live perfect? How do you actually do this? And I think the first thing is that you need to believe this. You need to believe this is true. You need to confront this idea that is so prevalent in Christianity that, oh, we, don't, we can't live perfect. We can't live without sin. I, if you get up every morning and say, it's impossible, guess what? It's impossible. The process of being free from sin is identical to the process of being saved. When you got saved, you didn't accomplish anything. You just went from a place of unbelief where you didn't really accept Jesus' claim as being Son of God. He died on the cross. I don't know, it's silly. Something happened and you stepped over a line and said, I, I believe it. It's true. And all of a sudden, that belief, no behavior has changed yet, but that belief now positions you that you're saved. You're in right relationship. Well, from that, it's the same dynamic I can't, I, I can't, I can't overcome this sin. It's impossible. Wait a minute. I believe I can. Through Christ, I can do all things. Boom! That's it. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that the gospel has to offer. Okay? Other than forgiveness and repentance, which is accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ on the cross. And that empowers us to choose to live right. But you need to believe that. You need to actually accept that. You should never separate the act of salvation from the process of sanctification. It's a, it's a kind of a, it's a mistake to think, well, I got saved and sanctification is a process that happens later. Or, and, and the whole argument about it, really you need to realize it's one act that's continually acted out each day. You know, I, I continually being saved. Saved means being made whole. Am I completely whole yet? Not yet, but I'm being made whole. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, if you don't believe, uh, yeah, right, you never will if you don't believe it. I already said that. So I'm going to end with a quote from a, from a Bible commentator who lived uh, over 100 years ago because he agrees with me. <laughs> and he's a smart guy, and everybody says Adam Clark's great. So <laughs> I agree with him. He was first. <laughs> so, <clears throat> be ye therefore perfect as your Father God Himself is the grand law 
sole giver and only pattern of the perfection which He, Jesus, recommends to His children. The words are very emphatic. As the Greek there, ye shall be therefore perfect. Ye shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, the God whose name is mercy and whose nature is love. God has many imitators of His power, independence, justice, etc., but few of His love. Condensation, condensation, how do you say that? And kindness. In other words, the, the character of love really dis- differentiates God. And we can live perfect in love. He calls Himself love to teach us that in this consists that perfection. The attainment of which He has made uh, both our duty and privilege. Okay, the attainment of which, perfection, He has made our duty and privilege. For these words of our Lord include a command and a promise. See, hear it as a promise, not just as a command. Can we be fully saved from sin in this world? Is an important question. To which this text gives a satisfactory answer. You shall be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. As in His infinite nature there is no sin, nothing but goodness and love, so in your finite nature there shall dwell no sin. Listen, and he quotes Romans, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus shall make you what? Free from the law of sin and death. You're free from that. God shall live in you, fill and rule your heart, and in what He fills and influences, neither Satan nor sin can have any part. Okay, we are given victory in Jesus' name. If men cry out, that's impossible! Whom does this argue reprove? God, who on this ground has given a command, the fulfillment of which is impossible. In other words, if you say that, you're actually accusing God of demanding something that's impossible. Well, God is good at doing the impossible, right? But who can, that's what he says, but who can bring a clean out of an unclean thing? God Almighty! And however ingrained the disease of sin may be, the grace of the Lord Jesus can fully cure it. How many can say amen to that? And who will say that He who laid down His life for our souls will not use His power completely to effect that salvation which He died to procure? That's it? That's the end. So Father, we just pray that we would be able to live in victory as a reflection of Your divine nature every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Aaron has some announcements. God bless you.